Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. We've got myself, Ron Hayes, in Wyoming. Just got done with a little snow flurry. Michael Morrow, how are things down in Colorado? Uh, blue sky, but windy. It's really windy. So if it's snowing up there, we're probably getting a lot of that. Up high. But yeah. But not too bad. It's cold. Yeah. But we're supposed to have 70s by the weekend, so that'd be cool. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride till then, huh? <laughs> I am ready for some warm weather. Yeah. I just got back from Phoenix and it was a little bit too warm. It was just a quick one and it was 90 on Saturday. Nine zero so, already in Phoenix and it's what? March nine zero. March what? 22nd. Wow. Nine zero. And everyone in Arizona had sweatshirt and sweatpants on in the morning <laughs> because it was too cold. And you were running around in a bathing suit, I'll bet. I was loving life. It was jumping in the swim pool <laughs> <laughs> that's a lie i didn't do that <laughs> <laughs> not really <laughs> we're joined tonight by neil jernigan welcome neil how's it going gentlemen good it's going great thanks for coming on thanks for your time tonight yeah thanks for having me looking forward to it i'll bet it's warmer in north carolina yeah it's definitely warmer um we're we've been in the 80s uh, this week, which is kind of nice. It's been a very mild winter. Very mild. Isn't every winter in North Carolina a mild winter? Pretty much, yeah. We did have two <laughs> snowfalls, so that's that's kind of a, a big deal. Two back-to-back Saturdays, which is wild. But really? We yeah, had it's, two today. It's been pretty mild. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's, it's, we're, um, it's always hot. Um, on occasion, we get some some nice wintertime weather. And I love wintertime, so uh, I I would be fine if it snowed twenty four seven. Yeah, for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you to Neil's wife for letting him come on tonight because it's yeah. late in North Carolina, and they've got a youngster to to get put to bed, and she's taking care of those chores. So, <laughs> yep, tell her is. we greatly appreciate it. I will, definitely. So, Neil, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you get started with wildlife? Sure. Um, so, I grew up uh, actually hunting, fishing, um, went out with my, my dad and my granddads, and we always had cameras. And so, it was kind of a natural thing um, back in the day when we actually had uh, tape. Uh, we would film film our hunts and go fishing, we'd film it, and... Like I said, it was just kind of a natural progression. Uh, we would go out every winter and watch all the migratory birds that came in. And I just started taking a camera with me. And um, when I was 15, uh, I saved up. I worked in the, this is a southern thing, worked in the tobacco fields and saved up, got my first camera. Uh, it was a Nikon D40. And uh, I knew pretty early on I wanted to do wildlife photography in some way. That's what I wanted it to do. And uh, I, I ventured into the world of, 
weddings and portraits. Actually, my senior year of high school, I started that business. I did that for about six years, um, built up the equipment, and that allowed me to step away from weddings and portraits and started photographing wildlife more than anything else. Kind of a short and sweet, but... Um, We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute because yeah. some of your images, you can kind of see that background actually in the way that you utilize light and flash and, yeah, you know, supplemental light, that kind of thing. So yep. we'll get back into that. But as far as wildlife, what, well, let's back up. Yeah. Let's throw out the icebreaker. All right. <laughs> What is your, you know, you grew up in the outdoors, so what's your favorite ever outdoor experience? Oh, man, <clears throat> I have I have several, uh, but the one that, that comes to mind anytime anybody asks me this question, um, my, my granddad was very influential uh, in getting me out and being around wildlife, and one of our last trips together, we were... Um, we have a lot of tundra swan and uh, snow geese that migrate through every year. And we were sitting in a truck watching them one morning. And um, it was an early wake-up call, 2 a.m. I had just got my driver's license. We drove out. been out there for five or six hours in the field, and I was tired. I said, all right, I'm going I'm to lean back, take a cat nap, and just wait me if you see anything. Well, it wasn't like five minutes later. And he tapped me on the arm. This giant black bear come across the top of a, a dike and entered the impoundment where the tundra swans were. And uh, so there's thousands of swan out there floating on the water. And this 600-pound black bear just starts moseying on through, goes into the water with the swans, and they kind of open up, uh, kind of part in the seas type thing, and... Uh, he walks right amongst the swans and crosses like he had done it a thousand times before. And as he went through, they opened up. When he passed through, they closed back like they were all good buddies. Uh, it was just a really awesome thing to see because uh, I've never seen it happen uh, ever since. And I only know of one other person that's seen it, and that was a biologist. And um, But the biggest thing is because I was with my granddad. And, um, I, I do have a picture from, I've got several pictures from that day and, uh, I, it's technically, it's not the prettiest picture ever. Uh, but I've got it printed two foot by three foot hanging in my office cause it's my, probably my favorite experience I've had. Uh, but most of it's cause I was with him. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So those, uh, those bears aren't necessarily hunting the swans. They're just going from point yeah. A to point B. Yep, they're um, 99% vegetarians. There's so much crop um, farmland stuff that they're feeding on, soybeans, corn, which is why they get so big out here. <laughs> and uh, he was just leaving uh, the cornfield that he was in, crossed the impoundment with the swans to get to his, his day bed. And like I said, he just, uh, they, they always take the path of least resistance um, and most times the shortest way. And so he just... Instead of walking around the impoundment, he decided to walk through it. <laughs> now, what you guys call an impoundment? Is that a lake or is that a uh, uh, like an irrigation situation? Yeah, pretty pretty much a, a flooded field. It's flooded and intended uh, for the waterfowl. 
Yep. So the, the refuge system that we have in Eastern North Carolina, um, were all really created for, uh, the migratory birds. And so every winter they'll, uh, flood certain fields and create impoundments for the birds to rest on and feed in. And how big are yeah. these impoundments? That particular one was probably about three, two or three hundred yards wide and about a mile long. Uh, it's a, it was a pretty pretty big field that they flood because uh, in eastern North Carolina it's wide open fields, and uh, it was just in between two canals that they were able to flood. And like I said, it was that entire section that was underwater. Now, granted, the deepest part was probably about five feet. Most of it's real shallow. And then do they do that? Obviously, it's a refuge, so they're doing that for, like, uh, habitat or Mm -hmm. swans and snow geese and probably all kinds of other waterfowl as well, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So uh, we get a ton of snow geese, uh, just like, what's the location, Uh, Bosque? Oh, yeah. uh, it's just just like that. Uh, hundreds of thousands of snow geese, swans, um, puddle ducks, divers, everything. You name it. Eastern North Carolina's got it. <laughs> but yeah, they um, every all of them benefit from it. But most of the time, it's the swans that in that particular area. The swans kind of hold up in those impoundments. I was going to comment on the size of the black bear, and most people in the Rockies. Are thinking a, a you know a two three hundred pound black bear is pretty big, yeah. but down in Carolina and even up in Pennsylvania, some of the biggest black bears on the continent. Yeah, yeah. We um compared to Pennsylvania, um, I th- from what I've heard, and I, I work alongside some biologists, and we have a black bear festival in Eastern North Carolina, and it's they they say that eastern northeastern north carolina has one of the largest black bear populations in the country and physically the largest bear and it's because they eat 24/7 365 um a lot especially on the refuge system so the the refuge system they don't harvest all of the crops they leave about 50% of it in the fields just for the wildlife and so bears got nothing else to do but lay around and eat corn all day, nothing eat but uh, sugar. So he <laughs> can't do nothing but get bigger. So <laughs> <laughs> that's Pooh Bear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So at this time of year, are you getting a lot of uh, action with mating and you know males and females, or is that later? Uh, that's coming up. So uh, black bear mating season typically happens in June. Um, there, so they don't go into a full hibernation here. Uh, like they do in out west, Midwest, but they do slow down. And uh, so they're, the ones we're seeing now are your sows with yearlings, and the the big boy, boys are starting to wake up and come out and be a little bit more visible uh, now that, especially since we're the days are warming up, getting in the 70s and 80s, and it's going to progressively get better uh, as far as the number of bear you see. But uh, mating season is typically we start seeing some some flirting in uh in mid-may uh late may and then through june july is pretty much the rut for them they're um they're aggravating all the ladies then fighting and everything so uh, we start seeing cubs typically late april early well it depends on the year but late april early may and then what's the predominant denning site down there is it mostly in trees or are they actually denning in the ground or what is it like down there it's it can vary it can be in a tree it can be in a hollowed out log 
uh, it can be literally on top of the ground in the middle of a field. Um, a, a local farmer had was he was actually um, cutting up the cotton stalks that were left over from the previous fall, and this was in February several years back. And as he was mowing the stalks, a big sow jumped up and ran off well he when he got up to where she was she had dug a hole maybe three or four feet in diameter only about a foot down and literally had her cubs right out in the middle of the field out in the open right on top of the ground <laughs> so were these cubs and of the so, year from from the previous year yes yep really yep they i don't if i remember correctly the photos i saw of them i don't think their eyes were open yet they had they were they had fur and everything but their eyes weren't even open it's crazy but yeah, um, they're everything from, like I said, trees, um, hollowed out logs and to right on top of the ground, they'll build a nest right on top of the ground and, and take care of them from there. It's wild. <laughs> hmm. I guess those nice warm weather bears that can do whatever they want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Winter time, you know, highs get up in the sixties or seventies. It's nice to be out in the mm -hmm. sun. <laughs> sure. So Neil, you picked up a camera right away but what what do you do for a living you said you worked alongside a biologist uh well what I, kind of work do yep. you do i um i've worked with some biologists in the past um uh as far as some like projects personal projects that i've worked on um but i do have a, a nine to five unfortunately <laughs> uh, that way i can pay the bills support the little man in there and um i, I i've been doing that pretty much the whole time and uh, I consider myself a full-time wildlife photographer because it's always running through my mind 24-7 and eat while I'm at work and when I'm out uh, not when I'm not at work but uh, yeah I have a nine to five um, but most of my wildlife photography business is workshops I guide people teach photography um, and or just guide people that want to see the bear or waterfowl or anything that's in eastern North Carolina that they don't typically have a lot of people over the last year, you you were talking about a nine to five. Since I went full time in July, congrats! <laughs> I found out that uh, the nine to five goes from goes from nine to five to six to ten, and I'm not talking six to ten in the evening. It's yeah, <laughs> six in the morning till ten at night. You got to be hustling all the time if you want to do it, it full time. That's it. But if you love so it, you don't call it work. Isn't too bad. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> That's true. One of the things that you do in lieu of being out all the time is do some camera trapping. And we've had a couple, you know, really prolific camera trappers on the podcast. But I, you have some unique images that I really want to get into. But how did you discover and get into the, the camera trapping? Like I said, when I first got started with a camera when I was about 15, uh, I knew wildlife photography was what I wanted to do. And w one of those, um, I guess, from the beginning uh, was camera trapping. I grew up, you know, National Geographic, Discovery Channel. Uh, I was a big fan of Steve Winter and his work with camera traps and big cats. And I, I knew that if there was a way I could do it, I wanted to be able to do it. And it really started, like I said, grew up hunting, fishing. We always had cameras and I had trail cameras from the time I was seven or eight. 
and these were actually 35 millimeter film cameras in a housing uh, that only used uh, was triggered by motion so it didn't matter if it was a, a leaf moving back and forth uh, I'd set my camera up go pick it up a week later all 36 exposures were were fi uh, fired I was all excited to take them to Walgreens wherever to get them developed and it was literally a, a leaf moving back and forth for the first 10 minutes but um but no I, I knew I wanted to camera trap um, really early on I just didn't know how at the time and again back then it was at the early stages of digital uh, so there wasn't a, a ton of equipment that was easily accessible as it is now and so uh, I had to patiently wait and uh, finally some people uh, a lot smarter than I am with electronics created some products that I was able to to get a hold of and um, yeah so I've got camera traps running 365 24-7 because um, like I said I work nine to five so if I can't physically be out there I want a camera working for me man I got all kinds of questions so what uh, you say you got cameras out there working. How many cameras do you run 365? Uh, as of right now, I've got uh, three that are running 365, and I've got a new one arriving tomorrow, actually. Um, and just as soon as I unbox it, it's going out too. Uh, I'd love to increase them to about six or eight this year. That's the plan. Um, so, but yeah, currently I've got three running. What What camera systems are you? using yeah so uh, i started out with uh just kind of inexpensive canon rebels uh, pick up off ebay for 100 200 bucks just for the simple fact that i knew eventually i was going to start camera trapping black bear and they're just very curious and love to destroy stuff so i didn't want to have a ton of money invested uh, when i started camera trapping the bear uh, so that's what I started with. Um, I did buy a Nikon D610 several years ago uh, when it was brand new. Um, we had a, a flash flood the first week out and totally destroyed it. So that kind of hurt for a while. So I didn't invest any more brand new full frame cameras. So I, I stuck with the Rebels. Um, but I just purchased a, uh, the what seven year old camera now they still bnh still sells it new um the 5dsr so 50 megapixel full frame landscape studio camera and that's pretty much what i'm doing it's just an outside studio so i figured i could go with some high megapixel uh high quality full frame images in the field so uh, but currently that's the system i'm using um just the older dslrs i'm looking forward to switching to mirrorless in the future just waiting for the mirrorless cameras to work correctly silently with uh, flash that's what i'm waiting on because uh, that's one of the biggest downfalls of camera trapping is the sound of that shutter slapping inside of the box uh, it's kind of tends to spook some animals off so um, can't wait to try to start using some mirrorless cameras out there with um, no um, shutter it'll be electronic shutter only so is it right now you can't run a mirrorless camera without in using a flash without having it not on silent yeah so i tested the r5 and the canon uh the first their first mirrorless the r and when you switch over to the electronic shutter uh it can't com it doesn't communicate to the flash um i guess the flash sync um in a way that where it can actually capture the light so it'll trigger the flash it just won't capture it correctly and so you'll you'll run into some major issues there. 
Um, so like the, the new Nikon Z9, it's 100% electronic and it works with flashes. So um, I'm hoping they'll integrate that into some future model cameras that's, you know, not the Z9. Uh, that way I can maybe get an entry level or mid-level grade mirrorless camera that I can put in a camera trap that'll be 100% silent. That's what I'm after. So what would you say the percentage of images are during the day and at night? Do you feel like you get your better stuff at night so you always have to have a flash? Well, it, it really depends on what I'm after. So um, in, in most of my cameras, or the three that's out right now, um, pretty much every animal I'm after comes out at night. So I've got a, a camera on a beaver dam, and the beavers, the otters, and muskrat actually cross the dam all at night. On a rare occasion, we'll get a, an otter that comes out kind of early or late. And then uh, I've got a log in, a, in the, sw on the same swamp. It's just a, a log that's elevated, a natural bridge that um, the original goal was to photograph uh, raccoons on and discover the bobcat. So and most of the time, the cats that come through this area only come through at night. But as far as daytime shots, I've gotten, gosh, maybe in the last five years, just a handful of daytime images um, that want squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of people that camera trap, and uh, I'm super jealous of their locations. Uh, I don't have uh, grizzlies or mountain lions or anything like that. Uh, North Carolina, I've got possums. I've got raccoons and then a bobcat. <laughs> We do have a couple okay. coyotes, so that's what I'm after. Let's doing. get into that, though, because you took or captured a couple bobcat images. I believe it was last year, right? They were some of the best bobcat images I've ever seen. Thank you. I appreciate and that. that. <laughs> the ones on the log, I guess, right? Yeah, it was a beaver dam. And that was one of those uh, rare moments where we actually had a cat come through during daylight. And, uh, I, I wish I could take credit for that is exactly how I intended that photo to look like, <laughs> um, but I can't, I, I was, uh, I was set for a nighttime shot and I had went in two days prior to the image being created and altered the settings just a little bit. Uh, I was trying to incorporate more natural light in the nighttime exposures. And so, uh, when the cat came through about seven thirty in the morning, it overexposed it quite a bit. And so, uh, luckily shooting in raw, uh, saved my butt. <laughs> I was able to, uh, to definitely bring back the, the highlights in that, in that photo and, um, save it and like create definitely what I think is probably going to be a very hard to beat bobcat image with my camera trap <laughs> i'm working on it i got some good ideas for future stuff uh with bobcats i just don't know if i can make it look quite that good but uh just i'm the telling one, you that just... <laughs> the one that i'm looking at is where it's kind of looking up a little bit up at the light yeah but it's got that reflection and yep that so i had um i had uh, some gray foxes that started crossing the dam and so that's what I was targeting and I've figured out, you know, the best location I can actually put the camera just above top of the water, uh, Fox come across, get a mirror image. That's, that was the, the goal. And 
it just worked out that when the cat came through, uh, that was what I was able to get with it. And so that particular image was the third of the sequence. So when he's walking across the dam, you know, he's looking straight ahead. Camera clicks. Uh, it, it captures a natural pose. He's looking straight ahead. The next photo, he turns, looks towards the camera because he hears the shutter. And being a cat, as soon as they hear something like that, they just kind of pause just for a second to figure out, you know, exactly what doesn't scare them or anything. I hadn't had any bobcats really run off from the camera. Um, but he paused, looked at it, and then the third photo, he glanced over at the flash, and that's when it, it lit his face perfectly. So kind of looked up there. <laughs> that's pretty cool stuff. I mean, and you must not have blown them out too bad because if you were able to recover the the image, it must not have been yeah. too bad. Yeah, it was about a stop and a half, two stops, but on the back of the camera of uh, the Canon Rebel, when as soon as I first saw it, I was like, oh man, I just totally ruined that shot because, you know, this is a small LCD screen, uh, not very good quality. Uh, but once I pulled the the files in the post, I was like, okay, whew, I can save it because <laughs> I, I literally rushed straight home and I was like, all right, please, please, please be able to save this image. <laughs> but like I said, it was about, it was about a stop and a half, two stops over. But um, bobcats, they, I keep, I keep, I call it the bobcat saga. It's just cause they keep teasing me. I'll, you know, try to target something else like wood ducks uh, with my camera trap and a bobcat will walk right behind the log or I'll try to target beavers. And of course, boom, bobcat shows up just out of frame. Uh, so it's kind of been going on for about five years now. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I think it's the perfect place to cut your teeth, though, when you're doing this kind of stuff, right? You say you would rather be in like yeah. a place where you could do mountain lions or grizzly bears. But if you're getting all this figured out now in a place that you can kind of control and you can play and you can just try different things. Yeah. And, yeah, if you screw up a bobcat image, oh, well, you're going to get more. You're going to get yeah. more opportunities. So, And I really feel like the more you screw things up, the more you learn. And then it's oh, yeah. it just helps. For sure just develop that whole skill yep definitely it's um i guess the whole outdoorsman part growing up spending so much time in the woods um helps me locate the animals you know figure out where to put the cameras and then uh yes definitely trial and error because uh that's the fun you know photography in general you know i've been doing it like i said for since i was 15 i'm always learning something new i may know something and then, like, say one of you guys happens to do it a little bit differently. I was like, oh, okay. And you're always picking up new stuff. And camera trapping is definitely the same way, if not more, because I'm I'm learning so many little little small things that make a huge difference. Um, you know, that can make a make or break a photo. And so, and that goes from locating the animal to the technical stuff with the flashes or the camera settings, all of it. So it's uh, it's it's fun. It's addictive. Um, you got to be patient. Definitely got to be patient. It's, it's, it's a long, a long game to play. Definitely a long cat and mouse game for sure. So do you, can you just describe for our listeners that learning process? So you start out with camera traps, then you figure out location, you figure out, Oh, well I need a flash or then you figure out, Oh, I need multiple flashes or then, you know, kind of just walk through that process because I think you have to be Pretty dedicated because, like you said, it's a long process and there's a lot of failure associated with these cameras. Yeah. So, kind of walk yeah. us through your your journey. 
Sure. Uh, so I can walk you through an image that I've yet to capture. <laughs> so I, um, the very first image that I wanted to capture with my camera trap was a bobcat scent marking on a tree. And I just kind of lucked up and, uh, and I put up a trail camera to document an area where, you know, it was a really active trail. And, uh, again, it happened to be around a beaver pond. And so, you know, uh, learning your subject, learning more about your subject will actually help you photograph it better. So knowing that around here, Bobcat's number one meal is beaver. And so, uh, if you, you know, if you're in the area that the beaver's in, most likely a bobcat will pass through. So I set up this trail camera and uh, I've got raccoons using this trail. I've got a coyote. Well, then a bobcat walks through and uh, it was before I started using video only on my trail cameras. And it was, uh, it took pictures and it documented the cat as it walked past and then it went about 30 yards past the camera and it backed up to a tree and I thought, to be sure that cat didn't go over there and just spray that tree. And so when I saw this, when I checked the camera that day, I, I went over there and I used my nose. <laughs> I sat down on the ground, put my nose to the tree and I was like, yep, that is a cat. That's cat pee. <laughs> so I found the spot where the cat was uh, scent marking. And, um, that took several years to locate just that one area, um, for a scent marking tree. And I've yet to capture that image. So, um, I've figured out the composition, you know, I found, you know, I get using Canon Rebel with, a say, a, um, a, a 10 to 15 millimeter lens, 10 to 22, uh, it's going to put me about 24 millimeters. So setting up the composition is pretty easy, but then it's trying to figure out, okay, how many lights do I need? Really? You only need one, but for a, a really beautiful scene, you know, you can put as many lights in it as you want to. So... I've got in that particular area a main light, a back light, what I call a fill light, and then a side light. And so there's three lights in that particular, for that particular shot. Um, and so and just balancing, uh, I guess that comes from when I was photographing uh, portraits and weddings. You know, I love shooting flash um, and and integrating that part into my, my work. And so uh, it's I don't really see it as a, a, a challenge. It is a challenge, but uh, it's it's fun. It's, for me, it's fun. I love uh, crafting the light around the tree and hoping you know it it highlights the side of the cat just right to where it makes it look you know ultra sharp. And um, and so and that's a shot that I've been working on for five five years and I hadn't gotten it yet because he's not come back through. <laughs> Um, so that particular camera hadn't been coming out, you know, hadn't been sitting out there for five years straight. Uh, so what I, what I do is I have to do it during the fall, um, uh, because that particular block of woods, the ferns grow up so thick and tall during the spring and summer, you can't see it. So it's only a fall winter time scenario. And if I can in incorporate stars into the shot too, or some sort of natural available light, uh, that'll make the, the shot look more natural instead of the you know, the, I call it the driver's license shot, you know, where the flash is just straight on in your face and it's kind of flat and boring. Um, you want a, a really dynamic, uh, scenario, lighting scenario to, to keep people's interest in it. So five years invested in a, in an image of a cat peeing <laughs> on a tree. Yep. That's it. <laughs> the, the funny part to that is, uh, I moved that camera down, um, to a little stream 
literally 25 yards from that tree, set the camera up, and I actually got the image. Bobcat actually backed up to my camera and sprayed the front of my camera. So I've got the entire thing documented, uh, water on the lens and everything. Um, I've, so I've got the, the pod Bobcat scent marking. It's just not really what I was after. <laughs> it's not the shot. You yeah. It's not really, it's, it's kind of That's pretty good, uh, <laughs> odor camouflage for your system. Yeah. That's what oh, I was yeah. thinking. You know what? You know, I'm not going to ever wash this cause maybe another cat will come through and think, Hey, let's do the same <laughs> things. <laughs> so walk us through your system because I'm assuming you're going to run all these flashes, uh, remotely or are you do you have everything connected via wire yeah when i first got started i had cables running everywhere <laughs> i had cables running from the uh, sensor to the camera the camera to each flash it was a nightmare um, but now i use uh, wireless triggers um, uh, the, the products i use are from chemtraptions and they're a, a pir sensor passive infrared so the sensor works pretty much just like a motion detect light on your house or the ring doorbell system is kind of the same kind of system. And so, um, you doesn't, you get more false triggers with that system because it's looking for any motion and heat, uh, versus, um, an ARR system, which is active infrared, which is one of those beam breakers. So if something breaks the beam, then that triggers the camera. Whereas this thing senses any movement, it's going to trigger the camera. And so I, I typically have a wire or cable from my uh, sensor to my camera just because it's the fastest way to trigger the camera possible. Uh, it can shoot wirelessly, and I do use the wireless feature occasionally, uh, but to get the fastest trigger, I need to use the cable. So that's the one cable I have. And then I use their uh, wireless transmitter and receivers for my flashes. And so I, I just build custom housings their radio um, triggers and so they can actually shoot through products so the the pelican cases they can shoot through them and they'll go 50 about 40 50 feet um, easy with no problem and so uh, it's all wireless now with the exception of the one that goes to the sensor and are you using any active sensors or is it all passive yeah uh, it well right now it's all um, the the passive ones uh, I've I just purchased a a, a different one uh, from a different company that uses um, the lasers, or I say lasers. Yeah, it, tri but, it just know, trips it. Um, yeah, the it trips the beam. Yeah, that way because there's a I, I want to try to photograph flying squirrels, and really the way, only way to I think I can do that successfully uh, where I want the squirrel to be in the image. I need to it needs to be able to break the beam. So that's... well, I think you're gonna need something that looks a lot like Mission Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to get some flying squirrels. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, been, done. it's been done. Sensors everywhere. Yeah. Oh my gosh! And yeah, to, to know where your focus point's going to be and what beam it's going to break, and oh my. Yeah, that that's definitely going to be a, a very fun challenge that I'm looking forward to trying. Um, I've located some squirrels, so now I just got to uh, to spend some time out there and, and figure out how to make it all come together but yeah it's been done there's um there's a couple of photographers that have photographed flying squirrels that have got some amazing shots so that's that's next i want to try it so how much did being a portrait wedding photographer you touched on that yeah and a, a flash photographer cut the learning curve uh quite a bit uh so when i when i graduated high school 
I uh, went to a local community college just for photography. I had no interest in a degree. Uh, I just wanted to learn everything possible about photography. And uh, my professor at the time, um, she taught me everything I know. I always give her credit. She, um, I learned how to shoot in, shoot film, develop everything in the dark room, manual. She taught me my lighting and everything. And uh, photographing people, uh, especially at weddings where things are changing constantly, uh, made a huge difference. Because um, when I was teaching myself and learning from her, uh, I would just walk around and look at light. You know, I, you know, I'd go out to town. And, you know, if we're standing in line to go into a restaurant, I'm watching how the light reflects down off the pavement and bounces off people's faces. And and then when I were, in, you know, photographing a wedding and you're there for eight or ten hours, uh, you're constantly having to change settings and um, see how light responds to, uh, you know, bouncing off objects or using flash. And, and then, you know, every reception hall is darker than you can ever imagine and so you got to bring lights in and to just to feel just to, to to show off you know what what's in there and so um that that made it very easy uh so if i had to learn flash from the beginning uh in the woods it'd be it'd be a little bit more difficult um and i i teach uh photographers how to do it but the way that i teach it is the way that I learned, and I think it's uh, it's a very easy way to pick it up pretty quick. Because um, flash can be it can be very scary to start with if you're not used to it. Um, but it's it's very simple. Um, but yeah, uh, photographing people helped a ton uh, to help me get started, especially since I'm pretty much like I said, creating a, a studio portrait out in the middle of the woods. <laughs> yeah, I think it's intimidating because you've just got to. You know, especially when you're mixing all these different light sources and you've got to yeah. kind of calculate, you've got all this different light going on. And I'm sure you're yeah. setting some of your flashes up with minus exposures and some with yeah. plus. So, and- yeah, everything's manual uh, except for the camera. So occasionally I'll shoot in aperture priority um, for certain scenarios, but pretty much everything's manual. Um, and that, like I said earlier, I, I love to create images because it, it makes me feel like I'm actually shooting film. It actually feels like you're creating something. Um, you know, there's so much instant gratification nowadays. You just press a button and you're done. Whereas for me, you know, I go out and I'm actually thinking things through, really concentrating on the composition, uh, concentrating on the lighting more than anything. And, um, and then, like I said, with all the flashes and everything, I mean, it, it can be very intimidating. Uh, but it's fun to me. Like I said, it actually feels like I'm creating something. Um, I may not get the image in a day or weeks or months, but whenever I do get it, it makes it even more rewarding uh, for what I've created. Yeah, I've got to give you props for that because, and you know, Savannah Burgess is a Wyoming photographer. She's been doing a lot of yeah. uh, flash work as well. Yeah. And that just takes so much patience, and I'll give both of you guys props on that. Yeah. But these images that you're getting or that you're setting up, like you said, creating, you've got the the backlit possum. Yeah. That's completely rimlit. Uh you've got the that bobcats that just turned out beautifully, we've already talked about. And then, you know, the raccoons, same thing. You've got yeah. some silhouettes, you've got some 
you know, some other shots with those raccoons. And it's just a, you can see the creative process that you're going through. How difficult is it though to keep the lights out of your shot? Oh, very. Yeah, very. <laughs> um, so if, if I'm using just one flash, it's, um, it's simple. Uh, but it all depends on if I'm using it as a main light or, or as in the main light feel or a rim light. So if like the backlit possum, um, yeah, that one was a little tricky trying to conceal it. And then that way there's not a lot of spill off, um, lens flare, uh, in, in the final image too. So that took a little work, but, um, but not too, it wasn't too bad. And <clears throat> I set most of my images or my camera traps up during the day. And so I'm thinking ahead of what it would look like at night. I could totally go out in the woods at night and set everything up. Um, but I just, I, I, I go ahead and set everything up during the day. And I know if I can nail my exposure during the day, the nighttime shot will be fine. Um, I'll, people always are surprised at that. Um, but yeah, I, um, I set everything up during the day and that way I can, I'll, you know, definitely take advantage of the live view on the back of the camera and, and zoom in and take test shots and see how everything looks. And if you can see any bit of lens flare during the day, it's going to be about five times worse than that at night. So you try to you fix that best you can. So are you using traditional camera flashes or, or like a manufacturer, like a Canon flash, or are you using a, yeah. a regular strobe of some sort? So it's the uh, worst kept secret in uh, wildlife photography, uh, the flash that I use. Um, and I keep telling people what flash I use and I got to stop doing it because they don't make them anymore. <laughs> yeah. And they're hard uh, to get. I know you yeah, don't even have to say it. I know which one it is already. Yes. So it's, uh, and I don't mind. I really don't mind. Um, I, it's the Nikon SB 28. They, um, they used to make them, um, I guess towards the end of the film days, beginning of digital. And it's just those flashes, the flash capacitor holds up and the recycle time is faster than any modern flash. And when I first started camera trapping, you could find them on eBay for 20 bucks. And I mean, all day long, $20, you could get a flash. And that's what I use nowadays. Thanks to myself and a lot of camera trappers um <laughs> that keep saying nikon sb28 now on ebay they're 75 to 100 bucks a piece which still is not bad for a flash but you gotta think these things are 20 years old and so i've got a large collection of them i'm always on ebay and if i see one pop up at a decent price i get it and so i've i've got a ton of them because i've actually sad to admit i've got about 15 that no longer work I've got to figure out somebody to work on them um, to repair them so I can increase my my, my flash um, backups again. So without giving away all the secrets, what are you using for like modifiers? I've, I've been out with some camera trappers that are doing, you know, National Geographic stuff and other things. Do you use tubes? I saw one guy, he was using a, like a PVC tube. Yeah, you could kind of yeah. direct that light. I, I'm sure yeah. you got all kinds of tricks. Well, so there's lots of ways to modify your light. So you can use small grids, you can use gels, um, you can use small soft boxes. Pretty much all of my images, 99.9% .9 of them are all bare bulb. Um, no, no modifier at all. 
Uh, I do use a grid occasionally just to reduce some glare, uh, lens flare, uh, and to really, you know, say if I want to shoot on a 50 millimeter or 50 millimeter zoom on the flash to really narrow the beam of light, I'll put a grid down on top of it to really concentrate the light. Um, and then I'll use gels occasionally, but pretty much all of them are bare bulb. Uh, I don't use any kind of big soft boxes or anything. I already took too much stuff into the woods. I don't need a giant soft box to go. <laughs> and I always thought too, you know, an animal's walking through the woods. Hey, there's a camera. And I'm like, oh, what the hell is that? You know, giant soft box. Um, I'd, I'd love to try it because the light is amazing off a soft box. But um, yeah, pretty much everything is bare bulb. Um, if you if you craft your light right bare bulb you can make it look like a softbox so little little tips and tricks that i've learned to to not bring in as much gear as i do <laughs> so and no extenders either uh no nope. you put them in your boxes no nope. um so the the housings that i make uh for my flashes are just um i can't remember the name of them at top or at the second but i went to like a local harbor freight uh hardware store and uh picked up a it's a pelican knockoff for like 15 bucks and it holds the flash and the wireless transmitter and i just kind of cut a hole in the end of it and epoxy some plexiglass in and it's pretty watertight for the most part and just bare bulb um no extenders or anything like that I, every, everything that you want to do with the flash the flash can do it can it can zoom in and out just like your lens you can widen it brighten it darken it however you need to what are you doing for batteries I, i'm sure that's been an evolution over the time too right just because they're getting so much better yeah it's evolving now as we speak so i'm trying to get away from buying single use batteries i'm trying to invest in some uh rechargeables uh, because yes, batteries that that's the number one thing. Um, so the the two ca the two cameras that are closest to the house now, uh, I check once a week, uh, most of the time on Sundays, and uh, I can get the the batteries that I go through the most are for the wireless transmitters for the flashes. Uh, the flashes will last depending on temperature and activity. They could last two to four weeks, um, but the uh, transmitters and receivers, they're triple A's. And so they last about a week, you know, with moderate activity. So um, squirrels, squirrels run back and forth all day long and <laughs> just trip them. So it takes, I'd love to uh, do a, a quick count on how many images I've got of squirrels only. Um, but yeah, the, the batteries are the, the number one issue. So um, I'm, there's a, a couple different companies out there that I'm starting to explore as far as the rechargeables um, i haven't found one uh, yet that i'm ready to dive 100 percent into um, but they're they're getting better so I'll, I'll be doing that pretty soon but yeah that's that's the number one thing i don't like about the uh the camera trap stuff is all the batteries would you be able to you know i use the cognosis camera traps mm -hmm. and then they send out i don't know some proprietary it's not proprietary i'm sure it's just a battery that they've just figured out that works but it's all well, now that I say it, I don't know. I don't know if it's NICAD or if it's lithium ion. I'm sure it's lithium. Lith it's got to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's mostly what I use is lithium ions. And then can you just manufacture your own cells? Not, you don't, you can't make the cells, but yeah, couldn't you, you just buy them. the cells and then just make your own little package of batteries? Have you tried that? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, you can definitely do that. So the the wireless transmitters, we can actually, you know, we can change it from um, AAAs to like D batteries. And so you can modify them that way. But yeah, you can totally, that's the fun thing about camera trapping. You can, you can create and modify as much as you're interested in. Because there's a lot of camera trappers that actually build their own sensors. Um, so, you know, if, if you're good with electrical stuff, which I'm not, <laughs> uh, you could, you could build your own sensor. And uh, I know a lot of people that do that and are very successful with it. Um, but I, I leave that to the professionals and I, I, I like to find a, a good product to work with, but yeah, you can, you can totally customize everything for camera traps. That's like, again, that's the fun thing. What about video? Are you dabbling into video? Because that's got to be a pretty huge market, I would think. Yes. Uh, so I, I, I learned recently um, that I, I need to be diving into the video world more with camera traps. <laughs> so especially with the bear, I've got a lot. Man, I've got so many images uh, planned in my head and on paper um, that I just need to create. And videos are the the next thing I'm I'm going to start diving into. Um, uh, you know, YouTube, because I, I do I have a small YouTube channel that I, I kind of document everything. And but the biggest thing is um, there's a, a lot of um, licensing work. Uh, people have reached out uh, wanting to know if I do videos for camera traps, and not yet. And so I feel like I'm behind. I need to jump on that because. Um, there's people wanting uh, high quality, close camera trap uh, videos, so I gotta I gotta get on that. <laughs> What's your camera choice for that? I mean, are you gonna try to go to a mirrorless for that, or? Yeah, definitely. Um, most likely the either the Canon system, or but most likely the Sony, probably the A7S three, I believe it is. Yeah. And that would just because it's a low light, right? Yes. Low light capabilities. Uh, and this is obviously the small form factor, but, um, but yeah, definitely the Sony for, for video for future use. So what are you doing for security out there in the woods? I, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I've not had any bad luck when it comes to that. Um, most of my camera trapping is on private property. I've got, um, a lot of friends uh, on social media and family friends that let me set my camera traps on their property. And for the most part, they know who goes in and out. And um, I'm pretty much the only one. <laughs> and so uh, right now I hadn't had any issues. I've been trying, like I said, I've been trying to photograph bears um, and all the public lands that we have in eastern North Carolina for bear camera trapping isn't allowed. I've been working on that for the last six years and they, they won't budge. Um, so I'm, I'm now starting to reach out to private landowners, um, in Eastern North Carolina, the Northeastern North Carolina for bear. And I've got a couple that's going to give me some access this year for bear. So, uh, we'll see how that goes. Cause then we're talking instead of a 10 minute trip to the camera, it'll be a two to three hour one way trip um, for my camera. <laughs> so then I'll have to switch all my trail cameras to uh, cellular. That way I can watch it. So I do have trail cameras that are documenting. I got them hidden around just, just in case. Uh, and then also for me, that way, if an animal were to walk through and I miss it, I'll see what happened or what didn't happen. 
Uh, I've got that documented, but yeah, I've got trail cameras hidden, kind of being a, a watchful eye over the, the trap in case somebody were to move in and, and do something stupid. <laughs> I was going to ask you about the cellular, Which, sorry, Ron, but I was going to ask you about the cellular trail cameras just because you can use those to just say, mm-hmm. oh, well, I need to get out there right now just because I had something go on yeah. in front of my camera. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't have one at the moment, but uh, I actually was looking at them over the weekend. I was trying to figure out the the one that I want to get because I will be purchasing one very soon because when I start working further away from the house, uh, I definitely want a live camera that can tell me instantly if a bear either moved the camera, destroyed the camera, or if a person actually came in and took it. So um, I want to know pretty quick. That way I don't put a camera out on a Sunday, go back in two weeks to check it. And, you know, the bear came in and moved it that night. And I got nothing but pictures of the ground for a week or two weeks. Those spy point cameras are pretty slick, but you've got to be careful the way you set it up because you get the squirrel going, he's going to blow up your phone. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I've done some research. There's a a company overseas that, um, it's, uh, a solar live camera that runs video, um, which is pretty cool. I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but I was looking at it recently and it, it runs a live feed just like a, the ring doorbell thing. Um, and it sits out in the middle of the woods. It's uh, solar powered, uh, connected to your, uh, cell service and you can watch it live 24 seven. It's pretty cool. How much is that service a month? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> My, my wife might actually <laughs> listen to the podcast. I don't want to say that out loud. <laughs> we can bleep it. Yeah. <laughs> $75. That's not too bad. No. That's justifiable for no. your destruction cam. Yeah, exactly. It's a write-off. It's just a write-off. <laughs> so I keep using two, but it doesn't matter when you run out of money, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I had a question. I was watching your YouTube channel before we got on the podcast and... I enjoyed watching some of those videos up there. I didn't get a chance to watch them all, but I did watch the one about your R5 taking a swim. Yeah, that was, that was very unique experience, a range of emotions. (laughs) (laughs) So I've, I've never been one to shy away from the elements. Um, I bought a, if I'm gonna buy a camera and you know, if it's raining, who cares? I'm gonna, I'm gonna be out in it. And so I've never really shied away from rain or anything like that. But um, I literally stepped two feet, two steps into the swamp. And I just didn't have it connected to the top of the tripod. And down she went about a foot and a half, two foot to the bottom. And it was about five or ten seconds before I located exactly where it was and could grab it and brought it back up. And I was like, okay, this is not good. This is definitely not good. And so... uh came home put it in some rice uh and i said all right let's hope that the insurance uh bill has been paid (laughs) but man that thing has worked flawlessly um i've not noticed anything um out of the ordinary since and so uh if anybody is wondering if the new mirrorless cameras are weather resistant the canon r5 is damn good (laughs) I don't know how, because when I was Everybody, watching that video, you're like twisting that camera around, and there's water just pouring yeah. out of that sucker. And I'm like, it's yeah. going to be a paper. Well, you said on the video, it's going to be a paperweight. Yeah. Yeah, I've got one of those. Um, but it's 
it had the 16 to 35 on it with, uh, with the EF. So it had the adapter. So it wasn't, you know, there was an extra point of uh, entrance for that liquid to get into. And it did great. Even the lens, um, you can, I use this, the lens every day and zooming it manually focusing. Don't, there's no grit, no anything in there. So I was very fortunate. <laughs> Very the other thing you want to do is pay attention to the seller on YouTube yes. or on eBay. Sorry. <laughs> yep. I, uh, I, I was telling a buddy, uh, once I posted the video, I was like, well, uh, that camera is mine from here on out. Can't sell that camera because everybody will know that it went swimming. <laughs> well, but if it's working, it's good. And also what kind of, yeah. <laughs> what kind of rice did you use? Oh man. I don't even know. <laughs> Might want to get a bag of that on hand. I still have it right Local here. Local <laughs> North Carolina rice support. Yeah. I still got it in my office somewhere. It's in an ice cream bucket somewhere. <laughs> well, and then just you said you waited two weeks, right? So it's got to be killing you those yeah, two I, weeks to just oh, know yeah. if it's going to work or not. Yep. I, uh, luckily, the camera was off, uh, so there was no electrical connection made. And, um, I, I had fell out of a kayak before with a camera, so I knew, <laughs> I knew to, um, just immediately take the battery out and I took the memory card out and see all that was wet. Even in those compartments, it got wet. Um, and yeah, it works good. Got it right here. <laughs> it's my distinct hope that Kate and Adam Rice are listening to the podcast and, and hear that there's actually someone else besides me that this kind of stuff happens to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, you gotta, can't be, can't be afraid to get the shot. <laughs> So tell us what people can expect exactly. to see if they go visit your YouTube channel. All right. So when I first created, I can thank my younger brother for the YouTube channel. Um, you know, kids nowadays, that's what they want to become are YouTubers full time. And he, he pushed me pretty hard. He said, you need to, you need to film, put it on YouTube, put it on YouTube. So I kind of started it for him and, uh, it, it turned into, you know, I, I photograph a lot of bear and that was the intention is to, to document my bear encounters and photography more than anything. And, uh, that was all BC. So, you know, before COVID. And, uh, so now that I'm, I've been closer to the house, um, doing camera trapping, it's kind of transitioned into a, a camera trap, uh, channel. Um, but so there's a lot of camera trap videos. Um, there's some bear photography stuff sprinkled in there and, uh, you'll see there's a couple of videos in there. Really good examples of our extremely o obese, black bear in North Carolina. So you'll be able to see some of that, but I'm um, hoping to, uh, to do more bear stuff this year, especially with the camera traps. So uh, camera trapping bear and uh, going out and just spending more time with the bear. Cause I love that. You can't beat that in, uh, experience. Yeah. I was looking on your really cool. page or on the YouTube there and you got 27 camera trapping videos, which is awesome. Yeah. I think you can yeah. probably learn a lot. Yeah. I, I haven't watched any of those yet, but I'm going to. I, I will say, uh, Mike, you had a, a big influence uh, with me wanting to, be, uh, to film my own stuff. Because I, I grew up, I remember watching Morrow's oh Moments. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Especially out uh, photographing the whitetail really? and uh, the alligators. <laughs> I remember one episode. And I, I, remember, I used to watch these things over and over again. I was like, one day, that's going to be me. <laughs> Man, those things are old. That was that was OG stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was great. Well, good. It. <laughs> if you'd have kept it going, you'd have had a million I'd be followers. retired right yeah. now. <laughs> well that's super cool well i we subscribed 
Wild and Exposed did, and I'll subscribe on my channel too. Oh, cool. I appreciate it. Well, I think everybody needs to go check it out. I uh, will put a link in the show notes to the actual page and maybe put up an image or one of the videos links to it, to one of the videos. Which one do you, would you put up if I was going to put one up in the show tones or, the, or, or show uh, notes? Um, notes. As far as one single video, yeah. you can do... My best yet? Um, I guess, yeah, the best Bobcat photo yet. That one's kind of, again, that's kind of an arrange array of emotions because <laughs> you get my initial reaction of seeing the overexposure on the back of the camera and then saving it later. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, and then lastly, I was looking at your website and your workshops and we've talked about them before already, but you have quite the selection of workshops. Maybe you could run through those just so people have an idea. I think if you are into black bears, you definitely, what you got going on down there is pretty cool. Yeah, so uh, I started do, uh, hosting workshops uh, about five, six years ago now for a black bear. And uh, Eastern North Carolina has bear uh, galore. So um, like, I, like I said earlier, if we have one of the largest populations of black bear and we have a lot of public land uh, that we have access to. And um, I've got access to, to private property as well uh, that I, I take people out and photograph bear. Um, I can almost guarantee bear pretty much can guarantee it. It's just, I can't guarantee how close they'll be. Um, sometimes they're a mile away. Literally you, these fields are massive. So we'll see them a long ways away. Try to, you know, getting closer. Um, but you know, the most bear we ever saw in one day was, uh, father's day several years ago. My dad wanted to go and we went and we, we saw 55 different bear in two hours. And so there's a lot of bear, but I always prefer quality encounters over quantity numbers. So, uh, but bear workshops, I do a lot of, um, if, if you're not into groups, I do probably 90% of my workshops are private. Uh, so people, you know, they one-on-one -on -one time or one-on-two -on -two or three. And, uh, so that's the main workshops that I do. We have a, a elk herd in Western North Carolina. I do elk photography workshops and wintering waterfowl. Pretty much everything is local to North Carolina. Um, I'm, I'm going to be branching out here shortly soon. So that's the plan. But, uh, as of right now, it's a North Carolina workshop. You've got tons of stuff available to you down there. So you might as well stick, stick around because yeah. you, you'll know it. It's great. Uh, like I said, you can, during the wintertime, you know, we can go photograph, try to photograph uh, snow geese and tundra swan, and there's a very good chance you'll have a bear in the same shot with the geese. It happens all the time. So, um, you know, we don't see a huge number of bear during the wintertime. You might see two or three during the day, but uh, like May, June, you know, you can see tons of bear, but... Uh, like I said, I always try to get quality encounters. If we have one good quality encounter uh, with a, a black bear on a workshop, you know, one or two days, uh, that's it's really good. Because most of the time that one encounter is something you won't forget. Because uh, the bear, they're, they're, they're kind of like I, maybe what you would see in, in Yellowstone. You know, they're accustomed to people. Um, they don't let you get too close, and we don't get too close. But um, they're, they're used to human presence, so... Um, most of them, it's kind of 50, 50, there'll be a sow with cubs that could care less the most chill, relaxed sow out there. And then there's some that'll, you know, send the cubs up a tree pretty quick. But, um, but yeah, it's always a fun time when we're photographing bear. Let's see. I was looking, hang on a second. Do you have any questions, Ron, while I look this up? Nope. 
Well, I was just, we'll make sure we cover by the end where people can find your work and your, and your workshops. Oh yeah. And then we'll put links. Well, you can go ahead and tell everybody what your website is. Sure. Yeah. And the, your Instagram. Yep. The simplest way to find me is just neiljernigan.com. Uh, I've got two websites you can access both from just that one. Um, I've got a, a, a site that's just photos. Uh, that's Jernigan Outdoor Photo, but you can access it through neiljernigan.com. And then Instagram and YouTube, same thing, Neil Jernigan. Just you can search my name and should be able to find me. Yeah, we'll put links in the show notes to all these yeah. things. So yeah, right on his page, he has Facebook, mm. YouTube, and Instagram right there. Yep. So I guess the one thing I was looking up is uh, the Maryland waterfowl, which would be kind of cool. Cause... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I um, I went up to Maryland for the first time several years ago and did a scouting trip and then uh, went back uh, for a private workshop uh, the next year. And uh, it's always a, a fun time up in Maryland, uh, Cambridge area, um, all kinds of divers and puddle ducks. Uh, that's the, the, one, the first workshop I, I branched out of North Carolina. Um, Maryland's always a, a good time. And, um, uh, this year I actually had to postpone it cause you know, COVID again happened. So I actually got it this year. And so I uh, had to cancel that one, but, uh, but yeah, the, the Maryland trip's always fun. Um, uh, matter of fact, I bumped into, uh, uh Doug Garner, uh, up there first mm-hmm. time a few years ago and, uh, got shot with him and, uh, it was always, it was, it was really fun. Uh, I look forward to going back there every year for sure. Doug's a tough guy to not have some fun with in yeah. the field. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, he gets dialed in, but he has a lot of fun too. Yes. Well, and yes, you get two does. Southern boys out um, there and it's probably going to be a lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, uh, I hung out with him, um, at one of the, uh, bear locations uh, a couple of years ago for a couple of days and it was a blast. He's uh he's a good guy. That's for sure. <laughs> Well, Neil, we appreciate you taking the time to be on with us tonight and talk to us a little bit about your uh, camera trapping specifically. And I I would encourage everybody to get on his Instagram, jump on the website, jump on his YouTube channel, and just see what he's got. There's some amazing images that I don't think, well, you probably could catch them in a lifetime if you just sat in one spot and waited. Yeah, I appreciate that. I really do. means a lot. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Wild and Exposed. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in time.